Thank you for downloading our podcast. Apostasy in Hebrews is looking to the provision, a tangible religion, and not the provider, God's promise confirmed in Christ and applied in the Spirit. So often, in the face of trials, we think that we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that he really is all we need. Join us as we study the letter to the Hebrews, as we are encouraged and exhorted to continue on this earthly sojourn in the power of our great Melchizedekian priest. Normally, when we think of a struggle in the Christian life, we can think maybe of a struggle in sin, or when we think about a struggle that a church may endure, we think specifically about persecution. And that's a part of what's going on in Hebrews. It seems they're getting set up to face some persecution. As I've said, this is most likely an exhortation that came to a synagogue in Rome. Uh, as this comes to that synagogue, they're probably facing a temptation uh, of turning away and not valuing the Christian life. However, when we think about churches and, and our struggle as Christians, there's a variety of things we can struggle with. We think of the seven letters in Revelation, you know, so, so often we think today we need these cultural anthropologists, just a fancy way of saying someone who holds a doctorate in some a degree where he can go and he can analyze culture. It's just a fancy way of someone who talks about society. And when we think about that, we say, okay, well, do, do we really need something like that? When we have Proverbs, we have James, we have Paul telling us to discern what is pleasing unto the Lord. And we also have the seven letters to the seven churches. Now, this is intended to show uh, an all-inclusiveness of the church, a completion, a Sabbath of the church, if you will. But these letters also give churches warnings about what churches can fall into. And there's a variety of things if we just briefly, quickly run through these churches. And I think it's very relevant in terms of Hebrews warning us about drifting away. We think of Ephesus. Loves doctrine, loves the gospel, but has lost its view of Christ. It has lost the very object of its faith. And so there's a warning there. Great that you love doctrine, great that you love the gospel, but you need to keep the object of your faith in focus. We have Smyrna facing persecution. There we have the, the warning that, that hardship's coming. You're going to experience it, but the Lord will persevere you through it or preserve you. Pergamium, uh, we have false teachers, and there's those that tolerate sexual immorality. So here, we have a situation like Corinth of just blatant immorality that the church says is fine. This is a way of drifting away. We think of Thyatira tolerating Jezebel and once again sexual immorality, something we can see uh, very much part of the church today in compromising its identity of what a husband and wife ought to be. And so we can see this same sort of tension going on. Sardis appears to love Christ, has that outward appearance, but doesn't have the substance of truly loving Christ. Philadelphia does not seem prestigious, but yet there's assurance that they will prevail. Laodicea, uh, basically, they're indifferent to the gospel. They like the gospel. doesn't seem that they're all that on fire about it. And so you have these examples of where the church can just say, ah, these things don't really matter in terms of blatant and outward sin. 
A church can also appear to really uh, embrace its doctrine, but not the substance of its Lord. And a church can also just kind of be indifferent as to whether it loves the Lord or not. And so we can take from these letters this reminder that this isn't just something for the synagogue. This is something that the church has faced throughout its history, as Hebrews will remind us, even as Israel faced throughout her history as well. And so when, when we look at this, we can have this temptation saying, well, we need to be more vigilant. Well, we see the Pharisees as an example of even in these churches, they love doctrine, they, they love the particulars of the law of God, the doctrine of it, but they don't love the substance, they miss Christ. Uh, we can say, well, maybe we don't need to be so rigorous or so vigilant. Well, then we can be indifferent. And this is also a problem. And this is exactly what Hebrews is reminding us and exhorting us. And so what is the fundamental call uh, for us? And, and what is the ultimate solution to this so we don't drift away? What, what is this drifting away and what does this fundamentally look like? So as we consider this, we'll see first that we're anchored in Christ, prosecuted in Christ. Again, uh, you look at that prosecution in Christ, that's a pretty scary thing. And lastly, the demonstration of Christ's power. And so let's begin uh, with this anchored in Christ. Notice in verse 2, verse 2, verse 1, it begins with therefore. The therefore is there for a reason. We, we know that. And so what's happening here is we've had the introduction where we have Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, assuring us Christ is the exact uh, attributes or character of God. He's the full glory of God. Then we had verses 5 through 14, basically proving the case. Christ is king, he's God. Uh, Christ is prophet, he's a word from heaven. Christ is priest because he sits at the right hand of God after making purification for sins. So there you have the three uh, offices of Christ presented in this introduction, prosecuted in showing that this comes from the Old Testament. And so that's the point here we have this therefore. And so as we have a therefore in the context of this, we have this exhortation that, that we're not to drift away, we're to pay much closer attention. And so when we have this exhortation, pay much closer attention so you don't drift away. What this is saying is that we have to have an, an urgency. We, we have to understand that, that there's something that's pressing us. That, that's the force of this. There's something very essential. And so the author of Hebrews is saying to not only the synagogue in Rome, I would argue, but to us. Listen, there is a potential that you might lose sight of who this Christ is. And as we saw in the letters to the seven churches, first century, this sort of thing is going on already. Losing sight of who Christ is. And so the author of Hebrews is saying you need to pay very careful attention. You need to see the bigger picture of what's going on here. And you need to understand the particulars of this Christian life and this gospel, very appropriate on Reformation Sunday. Once again, I wish I was competent in planning these things, but God in his providence makes me look gifted and skilled in these matters. But nevertheless, in terms of the significance and essence of the gospel, as we have the gospel here, the apostle, as he writes this letter, is saying, listen, you need to understand Christ is king, Christ is God, Christ is the one who rules over you, Christ is priest, and Christ is the one who truly 
uh, is the word of God the embodiment of this promise? And as he says, we, we have to pay this closer attention to what we have heard. Uh, so this hearing, this heard, is this understanding of what has gone before us with the prophets, also of those as we'll go on to see who have brought the message in the apostles. So the heard is what we have heard in verses uh, 5 through 14 of just a variety of Old Testament texts, again, establishing what has been stated in verses 1 through 4, laboring that point so we understand, wait a minute, what happened in Christ was intended to happen in Christ. And so now we, we get to this issue of this call to obey Christ, uh, this call that we might drift away. And we hear that and we wonder, well, what does it mean that we drift away? Uh, honestly, this is a word that's only used here in the New Testament. And so it's, it's a word that's difficult to understand in terms of Scripture. But if we look at what it, how it's used in its culture and in its time, the intention of this word is a word where a ship was trying to arrive at port. And for whatever reason, uh, the captain of the ship loses his orientation and his goal at sea. And so instead of thinking of this as being something that you know, maybe you're speeding and, and you crash your car and you go off, off the road because you've, you've gotten too fast. It's a fast event. This is more of just slowly being off course and continuing to slowly go more and more off course. You're drifting away. You miss the port is the intention of this. So the picture of this is not that this church or the church is something where there's blatant immorality that, that you can put a finger on and say, oh, well, this, this is the issue. There's, there's just this issue going on, and this needs to be radically corrected. But it's rather that it's, it seems rigorous. It, it seems to love the, the true doctrine, but it's not really staying on course for that doctrine, and it's slowly going away. An analogy we can use in our culture today would be like the frog in the boiling water. You drop a frog in boiling water, it's going to try and jump out or escape because it knows that's something that's threatening. But as you slowly turn up the temperature, the frog gets more and more comfortable uh, right up to the point of its ultimate demise. That's the analogy that's going on here of slowly missing the port, not really comprehending that you're off course, but you're just going off course. So this is obviously something that we want to be careful of. The point and the deduction we can make from chapter 1 is our anchor is to be in Christ. And so somehow in this church and its rigor and wanting to go back to what seems to be an honorable, tangible religion is missing the mark of Christ. And it's drifting away and doesn't see that it's drifting away from the very object of its faith. And so the author is saying, make sure you understand the object of your faith. And so when, when we understand this, this slow drift, we may say, well, what's the fundamental consequence of that? What's really the problem? I mean, it's just a slow drift. You can kind of drift back maybe and correct it, right? Well, notice how the author continues. In verse 2, in, two, in the beginning of verse 3, he talks about this prosecution in Christ Jesus. He actually prosecutes the court case against us. And he's moving from the lesser to the greater. 
And again, as we look at verse 2, uh, this is a verse that certainly solidifies in my mind. This is a letter written to people who are very familiar with the Old Testament, Old Testament precedents, and also a rabbinic tradition. And the reason I say that is because the author of Hebrews is assuming that this audience is going to understand. You sinned under Moses, you were executed. By the testimony of two or three witnesses, you were brought out to the gates and you were stoned uh, for certain offenses. There was a prosecution that happened. Uh, you, you obviously didn't want to do this. This would testify to the reality, the sinfulness of it. Uh, and, and it would make it so the community would say, whoa, I, I don't want to end up there. And so the author's assuming this, that the audience knows this. Listen, that administration had consequences and sanctions. And it was an earthly administration. So notice how he makes his argument. This is an administration that's mediated by angels. Now, when we hear that, we say, well, well what does he mean by this? That it's a message declared by angels basically going in between heaven and what we have here on earth or what we see on earth. Well, he's appealing to Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Now, if we read this as Gentile readers, and this is what the verse says, uh, basically, the Lord came from the 10,000 holy ones. We hear that and we say, well, this is just saying God coming down from heaven, meeting with Moses to give the law of God. So that's just testifying to God being in the glories of heaven. But we understand how the rabbis understood this when we actually turn to the Apocrypha. And again, I remember what the Belgic Confession says about the Apocrypha. Not inspired, but where it's edifying, where it's encouraging, or fills in some historic gaps, it's very beneficial. And in this situation, the Apocrypha fills in some gaps for us in Jubilee 1 verse 27. And it records the angel of the presence coming down from heaven to mediate the law of God. So then the tradition has been from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that coming down from his holy ones is actually the Lord sending the angels uh, to mediate or bring the law of God. Now we know it was written by the hand of God, finger of God, but you're seeing them as these messengers. Now, Hebrews is not trying to give us a lesson as to the particulars of how the law of God came about. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying, you know your tradition. You know what the rabbis and the sages have said. The sages have said that that administration mediated by angels, not by the Son of God, as he has just said in chapter 1, but mediated by angels, had consequences. In other words, it had teeth to it. Because it came from God, even though it was mediated by angels, it's not what we have in terms of today. And so we say, okay, what do we have today? Well, notice the question he asks in the first part of verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So his point is, if we have this administration on this earth where individuals experience death when they commit particular sins and you see that before the community, he's saying that's an earthly administration. It's inferior. How much more when we think about ourselves falling into the hand of God himself? He's saying, think about the consequence of that. If this is what the Lord does under Moses, imagine what he does at the final judgment. And so this is something that's pretty severe. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand Christ being the word of God, 
the incarnate word of God, God himself, Christ being king, Christ being priest, that this is inviting us to really think about the consequence of drifting. We may say, well, what's a little drifting? What's a little wandering from the truth? The author of Hebrews is saying, you're going to miss the port. And if you miss the port, you're going to miss the goal of heaven. You need to really think about what this means and contemplate it, digest it. Think about your life and who you are in Christ. And so the movement is moving from the lesser to the greater. If this happens under Moses, how much more in Christ? Now the other side of this in this question that sometimes people don't bring out, the neglecting such a great salvation. You see, this is the important point. Because what do we find in the book of Hebrews? In the book of Hebrews, they want to, it seems they want to go back to the sacrificial system. They want the temple. They don't know if following Christ is worth all the hassle and, and jail time and consequences and if this is really so, so necessary. Hebrews is saying it is. Because this is the great salvation. Because Christ is a great priest who has sat down and made a definitive purification for sins. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you start drifting off from this point, what do you have? You're going to stand before the judgment of God in your own two feet. And he's saying, if people could not stand before Moses in their own two feet, how are you going to fare if the great Melchizedekian priest is not your representative? You will not fare. You will experience a greater consequence than what you had under Moses. And so this is that call, that reminder of this drifting and losing sight of Christ. We need to understand who Christ is. That's the standard of being uh, prosecuted here. So the call for us at this point is what? Understand what we have in Christ. Understand he is our king. Understand he is a definitive word from heaven, action of God, confirming the Old Testament promise. Understand that he alone has made purification for sins once for all. That's what we got to take from this. We, we can't um, do anything to, to deny this or say that this isn't necessary. This is what we find in the letter of the seven churches as well. They're losing sight either of Christ's kingship, his priestly work, or that he's a true word from God, and, and so they're starting to listen to other revelatory or other revelations or other prophets that are false. So then we say, okay, well then what's the significance of this power? How do we know that Christ really is sent from God? When Moses went to the Exodus, he's one who comes to God and says, well, how do they know you sent me? And so the Lord says, I will give you these signs. So how do we know that Christ really is the one uh, that we are to anchor our lives, our hope, our faith, our identity in him? Well, this is where we turn to the second part of verse 3. He has a rhetorical question inviting us to think about the prosecution under Moses, prosecution under Christ. Now we go on we say, okay, well, it's declared by the Lord and it was attested by those who heard. So we have the Lord declaring something, and we have this understanding of those who have also bore witness. So this is where you go back to verses 1 through 4 of Christ being the Word of God. And so when it's God who declares this, 
It's not the angels presented in the first part of 2 and 3. We know where this mediation of the angels coming down, bringing the law of God, referring back to Deuteronomy 33. This is understanding God himself has taken on the flesh and has declared this to be true. In other words, he's saying it's not just the angels who have said it. It's not just a heavenly council that has given this revelation. But God himself has declared that this is true. And so right here you say, okay, the Lord himself said this. Therefore, it's true. So right there, he can stop in this section. And say, understand the great salvation secured in Christ has been declared by God himself because Christ is God. He is a word from God as already stated in the opening of this exhortation. But he goes on and he says it is not just that it's Christ who gives this word, but those who attest it. Now this is most likely a reference or a citation of Mark 16 verse 20. Uh, where Mark there in his gospel uh, talks about basically the apostles being like the prophets, using the wording of Moses in Exodus 3, as I've already made an allusion, where Moses says to the Lord, how will they know that you sent me? So the Lord gives him signs. You know, he puts his hand inside his cloak, it turns leprous, or, or it turns leprous and he puts it inside his cloak and it's not leprous. Staff turning to a snake, the ten plagues, all these things that come true as Moses speaks these things as the prophet or mouthpiece of God. And so Mark 16 verse 20 is taking this prophetic witness, this prophetic tradition, and saying these are the apostles. These are the ones who bear forth testimony that this Christ really is the Christ. And so it's not just God asserts it. It's not just Christ asserts it. He's saying we have people on par with Old Testament witness, the prophets who are called into the presence of God. We have those who are called into the presence of God who testify to the truth that Christ really is a fulfillment of this promise. And so these apostles then are testifying to what? Christ is the one who is a true messenger of God, uh, the one who is a true spokesman of God. He is a priest, a Melchizedekian priest. Christ is a true king, for he is God. He's prophet, priest, king. And so they're testifying to exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. Do not neglect this truth. And so as they testify to this, we can say, well, what's the fundamental significance of this, and why doesn't the author just talk about them being apostles. Because as the author goes on, the only place where he uses apostle is in chapter 3, verse 1, where he speaks of Jesus being the apostle. The other ones are just messengers. Now, I would argue his purpose in doing this is he wants us to think of the apostles having the same authority as the prophets, which again, I think bears witness or proof that this is written to a Jewish synagogue, that they're receiving this prophetic tradition. You're saying, well, the prophets are the ones from God. I don't know about these other guys. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying, well, these other guys, they have the same authority as the prophets. They speak the same words, but they speak the word of confirmation, testifying to the reality of Christ, 
So these other guys, you have to listen to. It's not just the prophet and the other guys. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen to the words of those who were sent. Jesus, being the apostle, and we'll get into it more obviously in chapter 3, but he's the one who is sent to make the purification. This is his purpose, to accomplish his once-for-all purification with the Mosaic arrangement pointed to, anticipated, Christ has done once for all as the one sent by God. And so the author's not contradicting apostle versus apostle. He's saying the other guys are on par with the prophets. These ones who have borne testimony are those who stand on the shoulders of Christ with the apostles, testifying to the same God, to the same redemptive promises. The prophets promised it, the apostles confirmed it, these other guys. And notice then the authority of this. Then you have in verse 4, because he's saying, and how do we know it's true? Well, we think Moses is a prophet, right? He goes before Pharaoh, performs signs. What do these men do? Well, the book of Acts records what they do. Here it's summarized. They did signs. They did miracles, uh, the wonders. Uh, they manifested the gifts of the Spirit, the speaking in tongues, prophecy. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, if Moses has authority, how much more these men? These men came with the same signs and the same reality and the same gifts of the Spirit that are being manifested. And so what's the point of this? The point of this is that Hebrews wants us to understand that it's not that we stand in absolute fear of our God. Now we have fear in the sense of reverence. Yes, we find this in Scripture. But it's not fear in the sense of terror. Because the reality is, if we just look at, at verse 2, we, we rip this out of context of every transgression for disobedience, we're going to get a lot of smiting. In fact, we're going to be very black and blue. In fact, if we took verse 2 absolutely literally and ripped it out of the context, there wouldn't be much of a population in this world or in the church. And so obviously, he wants us to think about the implications of Christ. And he wants us to think about the implications of what Christ has done. That the guys who came testifying of Christ are not contradicting the prophets. They're testifying to the same Christ as the one who has validated and confirmed that prophetic word. The ones who have come and bore witness that we have heard are the ones who have preached the message that if we lose sight of Christ, as our anchor, as a substance of our faith, as a very motivation for living out the Christian life, or the motivation of dying to self, living unto him, if we lose sight of that Christ, we've drifted away. And so the standard is not just being morally rigorous. The standard is not being more creative. The standard is not implementing things from the Old Testament to make our faith more meaningful. It's understanding everything we need is found in Christ. And as we submit our knees and we bow our knees to Christ and we put on the yoke of Christ, what does that mean? It means we want to live to the honor and glory of our God. We understand we are an incomplete, broken people who need the great Melchizedekian priest king to redeem, to sanctify, to cultivate life, and to plead our case in the heavenly tabernacle, and to continually repent, meaning we turn unto him again and again and again, 
recognizing that life is not found in us, not in our creativity, not in our flesh, but is only found in Him and in the power of His Spirit. And so in conclusion then, how do we keep this orientation? The solution is we have to have our, our faith anchored in Christ, our orientation in Christ, and understand that we are not redeemed just to live for ourselves. That, that's part of this reality. We've been redeemed to live unto the Lord. And as we're redeemed to live unto the Lord, it's on His terms. If we lose sight that Christ is king, we just simply say, Christ is redeemed and I'm king. I can do what I want. No, I am a king under His authority. We're little kings, as we find in Scripture. But Christ is a true king. Not only in his person, but because of his successful work. We have to see that Christ is also the prophet. If we fail to see that he's a definitive word from God, well then my word can be just as important as his. Hebrews is saying it's not. Christ is a word from God. Moses has authority because Christ has come. That's why Moses has authority and his words truly have teeth to it. When we think about, well, I don't really need Christ as priest, the reminder is, yes, you do. Apart from Christ being priest, we will never have life. So in terms of the author of Hebrews laying out these three offices of Christ, telling us that, that if we turn away, we neglect this salvation, we drift away, we have nothing. I think the fundamental struggle we have to come to grips with as humans is we will never be enough in and of ourselves. We never will be enough. We have to understand after the fall, we are broken. We are those who cannot pull ourselves up in our own strength. We are those who will never have a day when we do not need Christ. But this is where we have to go back to that wonderful promise. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? Why does he sit down after making purification for sins? After making us whole? The author of Hebrews is going to go on and say, this is why we need to continually come before this heavenly priest. Because he is the purification. He is the one who has made us whole. Let us not drift away and fall into our own creative methodologies to try and overcome whatever we're facing. But let us come with our knees, fall into the ground in a posture that has fallen before the cross of Christ. And saying, and only in you can I find my strength. Only in you can I overcome. I am a broken individual. Search my heart, O Lord, and show me where I have fallen short. And may I continue to conform unto you as you are the priest king who has come to redeem and to restore me to righteousness and to bring me to heavenly glory. That is our hope. May we never drift from this peace, this assurance, and this life that is ours in him. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, 
urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.